Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Wow, well, thank you, band, for some amazing Palm Sunday worship and choir for singing that song, a reminder of this week, this beginning of Holy Week. Um, yeah, if you don't know, centers center myself a little bit here. If you don't know, yeah, this, this is Palm Sunday, and it's the kickoff of Holy Week, as Alex explained. And, um, and Jesus does something very counterintuitive. It, Palm Sunday sort of represents this idea of the triumphal entry. It's sort of this metaphor, this image of like the king of kings is, it's, is a sort of inauguration ceremony. And then he does something very counterintuitive, just like he does often in his teaching and his other actions, is he, he chooses to die on a Roman cross instead of uh, going up and setting up a powerful reign. And in keeping with the very counterintuitive things that Jesus does, I will not be giving a Palm Sunday message this morning. Instead, we're continuing our series called How Do You Really Feel? If you came here for a Palm Sunday message, I'm sorry, I didn't prepare one. So I apologize. For those of you who don't know, my name is Aaron Bjorklund. I'm the, I'm the worship pastor here. So normally I'm up here singing, and, uh, but today I get the opportunity to bring the message. But before we do that, uh, I'd like to pray because uh, once you hear the subject we're gonna be talking about today, you might need some prayer. No, <laughs> just joking. <laughs> So will I. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this reminder that we just heard about in that song, that you conceived a plan for redemption. Thank you for conceiving of a plan for redemption, Jesus. We're grateful. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we interact with your scriptures and we, we explore and try and learn a little bit more about what it means to live in your way with your heart, that you would soften us, that you would prepare us, that you would enable us to encounter you. Transform us, we pray, in your beautiful and matchless name. Amen and amen. So some people might think that I have a broken gag reflex. <laughs> See, I have a pretty strong stomach, and I, there's not a lot in, that I've encountered in my life that really gets me uh, concerned when it comes to foods and stuff like that. I think it's probably because I was born and raised in Africa. So I encountered a lot of things that maybe some folks here who grew up in America might consider disgusting, and I ate bugs, I ate various different things. I encountered experiences that may have disgusted some of, of you out there, and I think that part of that and traveling around the world, uh, it gave me a little bit of the ability to have a strong stomach. Now, I didn't really think that much about this talent that I developed in my childhood until later in life uh, when I was working as a, at a mission agency. And part of my job was to go around the world and visit long-term missionaries and explore the option of, of sending teams to other locations around the world. And let me tell you, by far, the best way to do international travel is to visit long-term missionaries. You have a built-in translator. They know all the right places to go. They, they, um, they can bring you away from all of the tourist traps and all that stuff. They know the best foods and all this stuff. Um, but, and I, I don't know if this is true for everyone that visits them, but for me, as a young leader at the time especially, I, and, and maybe they'd heard that I was a missionary kid, it was like they had this 
universal hazing ritual, no matter which country I went to, where they, they said, if he passes this test, then we can have serious conversation about what he wants to talk about. And they wanted me to try the strange foods of their country. It didn't matter where I went. They all had these, like, they were going to find the weirdest food from that country and then make me try it. And it was sort of this hazing ritual. Now, let me tell you, I was pretty good at this game. See, I have a strong stomach, and there's not much that scares me when it comes to food. I'm pretty adventurous. And so all around the world, I would sort of surprise these missionaries by the things that I would dive in, and most of the time, with a smile on my face, except for once. That was when I was traveling in the Philippines. I was visiting this island called Davao, or the city called Davao, and uh, I was visiting a missionary there. And right off the bat, I could tell that this particular missionary believed strongly in this hazing ritual because we hadn't even made our way from the airport to the missionary campgrounds where we were going to be staying that night. And he was already talking about some of the strange foods that he wanted us to try. And so I was bracing myself. But again, I was pretty good at this game. So I was ready until he started talking about this. Balut. So for those of you who don't know what balut is, balut is a fertilized duck embryo inside. So this is probably the most palatable photograph I could find of this for you uh, because inside of these eggs is actually a little duck that then they steam. And uh, yeah, it's got little feathers on it inside and it's it's a partially developed duck egg. And you crack it open and you, you drink the juices out of this little egg and then you gobble down the protein part. Um, Well, well, needless to say, I think I'd met my match because I was starting to get a little concerned because they were serving this on every corner and this particular missionary was like, oh yeah, you're going to get to try balut. You're going to get to try balut. And I was like, oh man. Fortunately, we didn't stop. We had to make it to our compound um, for dinner. uh, And so we we didn't do it right then, but he promised that we're going to get an opportunity to do that. And then we got there and we met in this outdoor dining hall for dinner. And they brought out one of these. This is called durian fruit. And for those of you who have never experienced durian fruit, some people call it stinky fruit. And I didn't know exactly what what was wrong with it at first until they cracked it open. And let me tell you, it smells kind of like three-week-old rotting trash mixed with bananas. At least that's what it smelled like to me. And let me tell you, one of the only other foods that I don't like is bananas. And so, I, but I, I, I kind of felt like I could do this. I could do this. It's fine. Um, Balut, not so much, but this I was okay with. And I, I, w- I was going to do this. But they decided not to serve it right away. Instead, they were going to serve it for dessert. So they left it there on the table. We had a great meal, a wonderful time, wonderful conversation. And the conversation was so stimulating that they just forgot to serve us the durian fruit. So we went to bed, got up the next morning, went there for breakfast and to the same outdoor dining hall. And there was this durian fruit sitting in there on the table covered in hundreds, maybe thousands of little black ants. And so it's smelly, and it's covered in ants, and oh man, the missionary just lamented, and he just said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we're going to find you another durian, you're going to have another chance to pass my hazing ritual, this is really important stuff, really important. And what I did next, I didn't realize the benefits of this until later, but what I did next uh, really helped me out later in my trip. I walked over to that durian, and I grabbed a piece of it, and I blew off a couple of the ants on it, and I just ate it right there. And this missionary was so impressed and appalled maybe by the fact that I was eating durian with ants covered all over it that he never even, he's like, there's no way I can phase this kid. 
He's got, I mean, he's passed the test, flying colors, so he never asked me to eat balut. And that's the story of how I avoided having to eat balut. So if you hadn't guessed, the subject for this morning is the emotion of disgust. And so if you're completely disgusted by my sermon, I'm winning. I'm winning. So uh, at the end of the last service, someone said, man, that sermon was disgusting. And I was like, oh, it's so heartwarming. And so I love that. All right. So we're talking about the emotion of disgust or contempt. We find ourselves continuing this series titled, How Do You Really Feel? In this series, we've been exploring these painful, less desirable, less enjoyable emotions that we encounter in the human condition. And we've been asking ourselves, uh, what, what does the way of Jesus have to teach us about these emotions? If we're going to follow in the way of Jesus, how should we engage some of these more painful emotions? And along the way, we've been asking ourselves, how do we deal with this? And if you've been following with us, you may have noticed that Alex has sort of returned to this sort of like thesis that's over this whole series. And it's found in this quote by this guy named David Benner. It says this, feelings bring new data that is missing when only thoughts are trusted. Feelings give us information, new data that is missing when only thoughts are trusted. In other words, understanding your emotions makes you smarter. That's why we're talking about this. And, and this is so true, and that's sort of a, a casual way of saying that, but it's actually, it, it helps you engage the world around you in a really, really important way. We've all heard of this idea of IQ, right? IQ, I think it stands for intelligence quotient. It's a, it's a tool that can measure someone's mental capacity. And, and a lot of times people can determine how much a, an individual will succeed in life. Or, and there's all these theories around IQ. But let me say something that is really fascinating. This guy, uh, Travis Bradbury, in an Emotional Intelligence 2.0 book, said this. He's actually explored this idea of emotional intelligence, and he said it's actually a better predictor, the single biggest predictor of performance in the workplace and the strongest driver of leadership and personal excellence. So, so this is why this is really important stuff for us to learn, to figure out if we, if we can learn how to engage our own emotional world in healthy ways and understand the emotional world of other human beings, we're going to be better equipped to exist as human beings in God's earth. This is important stuff, and that's why we're talking about it. And you're probably sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, I get this. Alex already told us this. Why are you telling us again? I, it was my last-ditch effort to make you think that this is important to deal with the emotional world. But you're also probably thinking, okay, I get it. Some of the painful emotions, let's deal with them in healthy ways. But really? Disgust? <laughs> I already know how to deal with that emotion. Don't eat the durian fruit with ants all over it. That's how you deal with the emotion of disgust, right? So uh, if, that's, if that's what you're thinking, uh, you're probably right. Maybe that is part of what dealing with this emotion is about. But as we've also explored each week, as we've explored one emotion at a time, there's some nuance and there's some subtlety to these emotions, and they're complicated and we've been learning this idea. Emotions are, are God-designed, but, but, but. They can either function or they can malfunction. When our emotional world begins to malfunction, it actually hurts us. It actually damages our brains, our neurology. It damages our relationships with other people. It damages all these sorts of things. And the same thing is true when we mishandle and let our emotion of disgust go off the rails. So let's start 
by exploring the definition of this word, disgust. Disgust is a strong aversion, for example, to taste, smell, or touch of something deemed revolting. So this sermon, it's disgusting. That's physical disgust. Physical disgust is actually this physiological response in our bodies when we smell something or see something that potentially is harming to us. It could be harmful. It may carry pathogens, things like vomit and feces and durian fruit covered with ants and all of these sorts of things. Uh, these are the kinds of things that we, we sort of recoil against. We make these faces, and it's a physiological response to protect our bodies, and it's God-designed. But that's not the only part of this definition. It's also a strong aversion toward a person or behavior deemed morally repugnant. Hmm. And there's the rub. You see, this is called moral disgust. And the reason we're talking about this, and we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about this moral disgust, is because it's about how we interact with other human beings made in the image of God. And when we feel moral disgust for someone else who's made in the image of God, it affects our relationships. And when we let this emotion get off the rails, it can be damaging and hurtful. Now, if you're out there and you're, you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you're tuning in online, thanks for tuning in with us and worshiping and that sort of thing. But if you're out there and you don't call yourself a Christian uh, or a follower of Jesus, maybe what I'm about to say, it won't surprise you. But it also may be that what I'm about to say is the reason you don't wanna call yourself a Christian and you don't think you buy into this whole Christianity thing. But I'm going to say it because those of us who do call ourselves Christians or followers of Jesus need to hear it. So it might not be a surprise to you, but it might be a surprise to us. Did you know that the leading reasons for, that people give for why they do not feel compelled by Christianity have nothing to do with Jesus? Did you know that the leading reasons why people are not compelled by Christianity have nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus. The leading reasons that people give have to do with the emotion that they feel from the church about them. They think that we are disgusted by them. In this report by the Barna Group, this Barna Research Group, 90% of people between the ages of 16 to 29 felt that Christians were judgmental. When they're feeling that from us, what they're feeling is they're feeling like you Christians are disgusted by me, my choices, my behavior. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a little bit of a problem, but this gets really tricky, doesn't it? If you don't call yourself a Christian, let me explain to you why this is tricky for some of us who do. Because we, we encounter this teaching of Jesus to love our neighbor as ourself, right? To... That sort of sounds like the, the, the classic accept people, right? Love, it's beautiful, good. All right, got it. But then the scriptures also seem to lay out this high moral standard about how we're supposed to conduct ourselves and the things that are good and the things that are bad. And then we, 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 we're sort of caught in between this situation. How do we love while also not compromising? How do we love someone who's living in a way that we think is contradictory to the scriptures and then while not at the same time like feeling like we're condoning that thing? It, it gets tricky, right? 
If anyone else has had these questions, it's this. Where is the line between love and leniency? If you've had that question, that question is actually sort of hovering around this emotion of disgust. Because again, this, this emotion of disgust is, is, is a physiological response to something that could potentially be harmful to us. And moral disgust is sort of like this moral response to something or behavior or people or kinds of people that might be potentially dangerous to our spiritual lives or something. And so it gets, it gets down into our hearts. It's a hard thing to deal with. Well, I think if we can figure out what to do with this emotion of disgust, we'll have an answer, at least a start to an answer to some of these questions. Now, the scriptures have us a great uh, story for us to help us with this, because the early church wrestled with the same thing. In fact, God's followers have been wrestling with these similar questions throughout all of time. If you're the kind of person who wants to follow along, you can follow along. We're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 10 today. And while you're turning there, let me explain to you what's been going on in the story so far. Um, Acts was written by a guy named Luke. He actually, uh, most scholars think that he is using Peter as a primary reference. Peter was one of Jesus' closest followers. It, arguably, he's sort of the leader of the early church in a lot of ways. And um, so far, Jesus has, has walked the earth. He's taught. He's gathered his disciples. He's died. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. And then he came back and he commissions his disciples to form the early church and to, to take his message of goodness and beauty and love and the forgiveness of sin all around the world. And he does that. One of the places he does that commissioning is here in Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when, you have, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And there's some other texts where you can read about this commissioning of Jesus and it's this grand vision of his goodness and his forgiveness and the resurrection of the dead. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But when we read it, we might miss some of the challenge, the angst that they might be feeling when they're hearing this commissioning. And it's found in this idea of the, going and bringing this to, the, to Samaria. See, Samaria was the religious sellouts. They're the, they're the backsliders. They're the ones who don't really take their faith of the true, pure, holy, moral faith that seriously. They're, they're the disgusting ones. I'm supposed to take it there. And, and then to make it worse, and to the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth, that includes uh, Rome, this, this empire that's ruling over us, and that includes Egypt, this nation that cons consistently derails um, the Israelite people around their history. And so they were actually trained from childhood to be disgusted by these other people groups, and, and rightfully so. In fact, there's all these warnings about over-interacting with these groups because throughout Israel's history, they'd encountered some of these groups and they started to interact with them a little bit too much and then it turned into uh, worshiping some of their gods and then eventually they had shifted their worship from the one true God to these idols and that sort of thing. And so in this season of the, Israel, of, uh, the Jewish nation, these children were taught from infancy that they should be disgusted and avoid these things. Otherwise, they might be contaminated by them. And so 
this grand vision that Jesus has to bring his goodness in the world, the biggest barrier to that is this. The biggest threat to God's plan for the world was the well-intentioned moral disgust in his own disciples. The well-intentioned moral disgust in his own disciples. And I think the Holy Spirit and his wisdom knew that these early Christians, while they're trying to figure out how do I live in this way of Jesus? How do I take this message of Jesus to the world? They, the Holy Spirit knew that they needed some training wheels when it came to this particular issue. And that's where we pick up our story in Acts chapter 10. We meet this guy, uh, last service. I forgot his name initially. It took me a few minutes. Um, people are even shouting at me and I couldn't even remember his name. I was like, what in the world? I'm staring at it. Cornelius is the centurion, this Roman centurion. And we're introduced to him. And aside from being a Gentile, a person from that disgusting group, he was also a Roman centurion. He's part of the military that is overruling and sort of like heavy-handedly ruling the Israelite people. Aside from that, he's a pretty good guy. You know, he's actually a God-fearer, the text tells us. He, he, that means he worships the God of the Jews. He gives to the poor and all these sorts of things. And so right off the bat, he, there's this sort of like mixture of emotions about this guy. He's like good, and, but he's also sort of this disgusting Gentile and that sort of thing. But an angel meets with him and challenges Cornelius to reach out and, and send for Peter, who we were just talking about, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, and to bring, it, bring Peter and then do whatever Peter says. Well, Cornelius, being a God-fearer, does, does just that. And then while, those, while he sends some of his messengers to go get Peter, we pick up our story in verse nine. It says this, and about noon, the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof of where he is staying to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance and he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. So he's, he's in this sort of trance state. He has this vision, and Peter's right off the bat. Maybe we don't pick up on some of the subtleties going on here culturally, but he's disgusted by this moment. He's got this sheet with some durian, some balut in there. And... No, but so culturally speaking, some of the animals that are mentioned that are in this that are in this sheet are reptiles and these things that the, the law of God, who God gave, God gave this law, had said, these things shall not be eaten. In other words, he had been trained from childhood to be disgusted. So right off the bat, there's our emotion, right? He has physical disgust for this whole interaction. But it happens three times, and then there's this challenge, do not call something unclean that I've made clean. And I think he's like, 
I'm trying to track here. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand what's going on. And while he's pondering this, the spirit then nudges on him and says, by the way, there's some Gentiles downstairs and they're gonna ask you to come with them, go. And he's like, okay, I'm tracking, I think. They, he goes downstairs, he tells them, uh, I'm, I'm the one you're looking for. And he invites them in for that night. They explain the whole angel visiting their master situation. And then he goes with them the next day. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and his close friends. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, let's go to a place, a Gentile place with disgusting people, and then let's just call them all. Let's just make a big old party of it, right? So Cornelius was, <laughs> gathers all of his relatives together, his close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met with him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. But Peter is starting to track. Peter's starting to get what, what the Holy Spirit's trying to teach him here. So he's like, well, Yes, I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach a sermon. So he, he starts to preach. He starts to preach about this vision that Jesus has for changing the world, this kingdom of God. He talks about the resurrection. He talks about how Jesus came and taught and, he, and died for our sins. He talks about this stuff. And, and he, maybe just right when he think that, thinks that his sermon's going super duper well, uh, he's actually cut off. The Holy Spirit's like, yeah, 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 good sermon, while Peter's still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit come, came on all of them who heard the message. Like the Spirit just interrupts the moment. It says, yeah, good sermon. All right, I'm gonna just show up. <laughs> the circumcised believers, in other words, the clean ones, the morally clean, the, the, the holy ones who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the disgusting Gentiles. I'm adding these little terms of disgusting to help you. This is how they would feel about this moment. For, the, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized with water. They received the same Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. That's another step in this test for Peter, to go into a Gentile's house, to have dinner, sleep over. That was like a different level of association. But I think Peter's starting to get it. He's really starting to understand what the Spirit's trying to teach him about what to do with this emotion of moral disgust. And I think he's starting to remember, maybe, maybe, the text doesn't say this, but I like to think that maybe he remembers that this isn't the first time he's stayed with a Gentile. In fact, earlier when Jesus was walking and teaching and raising up his disciples, they'd stayed with a Gentile before. Maybe the only other time in the New Testament up to this point, Jesus, he meets this Samaritan woman along the way. He encounters her. He sees her. He meets her needs emotionally and all these sorts of things. And she starts to embrace her, his way. And then she goes and tells the whole town. And then this happened. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
And he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came, again, Samaritans, they were the disgusting ones, these sellouts. Samaritans came to him. They urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. Peter was there. And I think he says, oh, rabbi, teacher, Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, I see you've done this. And so I feel free to stay at Cornelius's house. Now, it'd be awesome if the story ended there. Lesson learned, you know, but it doesn't end quite yet because the word starts to spread. Acts chapter 11, the apostles and believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised, again, the morally clean people, believers, criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and, 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 and you ate with them? <laughs> you see, for, for an ancient Jew, to eat with someone was to like identify with them, to associate with them. The same thing that was gonna go into your body, the same food that went into your body and sustained your life was gonna go into their body and sustain their life. It was like becoming one in some way, shape, or form. It was like embracing them wholeheartedly. And they were just, maybe this is a little bit of how they were feeling. No way. You're gonna, you're, you're, you're gonna eat with them? I can't believe it. And so Peter is sort of left out on a limb, right? He's supposed to be this leader of the church and he's already doing really disgusting things with really disgusting people. But I think Peter is equipped with something that enables him to stand up to the lesson that he'd learned, to stand up to them with this lesson that he had learned. You see, he was equipped, Peter was equipped with a relationship with Cornelius that equips him to deal with their disgust. So they're disgusted, but this is no longer a theory to Peter. No, this isn't just a vision that he had about some sheets and some weird animals. No, 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 no. This is Cornelius. This was the guy who he'd had dinner with. This is the guy who he had breakfast with. He'd met his kids. He'd met his wife. He knew Cornelius. And there's something powerful about relationship that helps us to relinquish our disgust. Relationship helps overcome moral disgust because it humanizes people. And this was about a, another human being made in the image of God for Peter now. And so he boldly stands up for the lesson that he's learned and he, he starts to tell them the story. One of the ways that you can tell if you're reading the scriptures and trying to figure out what the author wants you to really focus in on is just pay attention to how much an author, an ancient author, would give to a subject, how much real estate on the page. Because it was an expensive thing to write back then. It was expensive, there's parchment and all this stuff. And so they were highly efficient with their communication. Like It was like... Uh, communication on concentrate sort of situation. But when they wanted to highlight something for you, they would repeat it. Or they'd, they'd extend it out and sort of milk it for all it's worth. And it was their way of saying, don't miss this. This is really, really important. And this was so really, so important to Dr. Luke, who wrote this for us, and to Peter, who is probably the primary source for this text, that they tell almost the entire story all over again in chapter 11. 
It's like they're, they're trying to say, you can't miss this. This was like a turning point for this church. We're trying to figure out how to follow the way of Jesus and bring this grand vision. And this moment was so, so critical for us. So don't miss it. I'm not going to read that whole thing for you, but he sums it up with this. He tells the whole story about Cornelius and about the vision and about the sheets and do not be disgusted by things that I'm, I've made clean or don't call it unclean, all of this. And then he says this, as I was speaking to, to Cornelius and his family, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered, I had this voice in the back of my head of my savior Jesus said, or of John, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave to us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even, even, even Gentiles? He, even Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So Peter had been telling this story already in the book of Acts to fellow Jews about the forgiveness of sin. But it was part of his interaction with Cornelius where he realized that forgiveness and the way of Jesus was in an invitation not just for, or it was an invitation for all people, not just his People. The cross, the doorway to a new interaction with God and this grand vision that Jesus was painting was open to all people. And the early church, partially from Peter's leadership, started to understand this truth. They started to know where to put this moral disgust. And they, they learned it so well that it transformed all of history since. Secular historians to this day have said that some of the things that this early church did with their, uh, what would normally disgust people was one of the reasons why the early church has changed all of Western history. The early church learned to set aside both moral and physical disgust for the sake of love. If Jesus dealt with every moral failure on the cross, is there any place for moral disgust? It's a question you might be asking. So, okay, I got it. Just, I can feel physical disgust because I don't want to get uh, sick or something like that, but maybe I'm supposed to just take moral disgust and set it aside. Well, as we learned earlier, actually every emotion is God-designed but they can either function or they can malfunction. And here's what I would like to propose to you is that there is a place for moral disgust. Maybe you've heard a story about uh, someone who was horribly abused, a child, someone taken advantage of, and you're just disgusted by it. Moral disgust is a healthy reaction to the dehumanization of another person. You can feel disgusted towards something. It's like your way, uh, it's your bodies and your minds and your soul's way of saying, that's not okay. It's an emotion that says that's just not how it's supposed to be. But it's more than that. This emotion is more than that. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's an invitation to rehumanize the moment. 
So when it swells up in you, it's actually saying step in and rehumanize this moment. If you don't remember anything else I say, maybe just remember this. Moral disgust is an invitation to rehumanize, not to dehumanize. And it can be one or the other. When you feel that emotion, it's you, there's someone in the story or something in the story that or someone is being dehumanized when you feel moral disgust and, you, and you're supposed to step in and say, I see this moment and it's disgusting and it's horrible, but I would like to rehumanize this moment. Or if you feel disgust towards the humans in that situation, you actually dehumanize them. A few weeks ago, Kevin Butcher preached a message on shame and one of the things he talked about in this message is that shame is one, probably one of the most damaging emotions that a human can experience. And I think after studying this subject this week, I think that when someone feels like you are disgusted by them, it is probably the leading reason why people feel shame. So we, we, we've, gotta, we've gotta be really careful with this emotion and how we portray it towards others because it could damage them and shame. So back to our question, where is this line between love and leniency? The only law for a Christian is the law of love. That's where the line is, love. And man, I'm, I gotta hurry up here. So, um, Jesus, uh, Jesus taught this and he made this really clear to his disciples. Actually, when he was asked a very similar question about uh, about what things to prioritize as far as moral things are concerned. Jesus actually taught in Matthew 22, he says this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law, all of the moral rules, all the regulations, all the things that you thought made you disgusting are taken care of if you can obey these laws. Love God and love others. So what are we supposed to do with all those rules? What are we supposed to do with all those rules? How do we not get corrupted by the world around us and all this stuff? Well, let me tell you, all of the rules of Scripture, all of the commands of Scripture are not about you getting to the good place when you die anymore. It's not about that. What those things are is they're invitations to life. And no one has ever been shamed into the kingdom of God. No one has ever been shamed into a better moral life. No, only love is invitationally strong enough to cause someone to, take, to go from this direction in their life to this direction in life. So there's one rule for us as Christians, and that's to love. And then maybe if relationship is restored enough, you can invite them into a different way of living, a more beautiful more whole way of living. But the rule is love. And if the band's not already up here yet, I think last time I invited them up and they were already up here, I'm gonna invite them up because they're gonna close our time with a song. Now the early church, um, they got this. They started to figure this out so well that it actually kicked off the fastest, most beautiful and majestic revival in all of human history. In AD 165 to 270, there were two plagues, the Antonian and the Cyprian plague. And during those plagues, the Christians, the followers of Jesus did something that the human history had never seen before. 
they actually started to care for the sick. They risked their own lives. They took their physical and their moral disgust for outsiders and other people. And they set it along on the side and they said, I'm going to step in and I'm going to care for people. And because of that action, one, the most beautiful, fastest growing revival in human history broke out. And that's why the church grow, grew so quickly. And that's why the church to this day has changed the world. We can't afford to get this wrong. We can't afford to get this wrong. When we make the world feel disgusted, we're getting it wrong. Instead, we show up with love at the risk of our own lives, just like Jesus did. At, at the risk of his life. Not just the risk, he actually gave his life for disgusting, morally reprobate human beings like you and like me. That's our leading voice to the world. So if you're asking, okay, how do, all right, I get it. How do I go about doing this? How do I deal with this, these emotions that I was trained as a child in my religious upbringing to, to put people in boxes and their behavior and their lifestyle and their sexual orientation, their political worldview and all of these different things? What do I do with those feelings? Here's just a quick few tips. Respond as discussed with a relational question. If you feel that emotion, get to know the person. Ask them where you're from. How'd you get here? Why are you doing this job? Get to know them. It's amazing how disarming relationship can be to this feeling of moral disgust. Tell an imaginary backstory about the person that disgusts you. This helps you maybe rewire your response to them. If you hear a story about someone who's done some, done, done some heinous crime and you're just sort of disgusted by their presence, maybe back up and say, well, maybe, maybe the reason they abused that person was because they were abused as a child. Maybe, maybe they were so hurt and so racked by shame that the only framework they have for human existence is, is to hurt other people, hurt people, hurt people. And it disarms the moment. It allows you to step in with love. Ask yourself, how can I rehumanize this moment? Remember that death isn't the worst outcome. You're completely safe to enter into disgusting moments because death isn't the worst outcome. You're completely safe to enter into morally disgusting moments because the cross has paid for it all. So the band's gonna be singing this song and I wanna point out this pre-chorus just a little bit for us and then we're gonna sing into this. This is about us encountering the world well and it's about us bringing revival to a world that needs the way of Jesus. To see this grand vision that Jesus talked about come to fruition. There's no prison wall that you can't break through Jesus. In fact, he came from clean, morally pure heaven to disgusting earth and became a man in order to reach us. No moment you can't move. Mount, mountain you can't move. All things are possible. There's no broken body, no disgusting broken body that you can't raise. No soul that you can't save. All things are possible. We've got to get this right. Because if we get this right, then we might see some of the move of God that the early church saw. They saw it because they actually took this invitation seriously. All right, let's pray. Jesus, help us to love people well. We ask, amen. 
If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.